at so far. Hopefully I'll get you out of here before 1 o'clock. It's a joke. That's a joke. Uh, it's a joy to be here with you this morning, um, to have the opportunity to fill this pulpit as opportunities present themselves moving forward. As Alan said by way of introduction, have nothing but the highest level of love and respect for the Taylor family and, of course, the Newman family as well. By God's grace, I've been able to develop close friendships with them over the past two-plus years. And anytime I have a chance to, to labor together for the glory of God and for the good of God's people, I want to take full advantage of that. And then to do so amongst friends is an even greater privilege. So thank you so much for having me and my wife and sweet baby Izzy. Hopefully they'll be back from uh, a, a mid-morning snack uh, for baby Izzy this morning. But um, to get us started today, I just want to start our message by way of preface. When Alan told me that he had just started preaching through the Gospel of John, my initial reaction was one of great excitement and one of great nervousness. On the one hand, the Gospel of John is one of my favorite books in the entire Bible. I've always wanted to preach to that book verse by verse. It's incredibly rich with sound Bible doctrine. It's a, a gospel that exalts the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, and it's really evangelistic in nature. Like it's a gospel that will take God's people and send them out into the world into action because the gospel of John is all about who Jesus is and what he provides needy and perishing sinners like you and me, which is everlasting life, forgiveness of our sins and eternal life in God's kingdom. So really was excited to have the opportunity to preach through the Gospel of John, but I was also very nervous, very, honestly very uh, overwhelmed. Morgan said today in Sunday school, there was a feeling of inadequacy that gripped me as I stood before the mountain of this book of the Bible because there's just no way that we could even hope to exhaust the riches that are found in this gospel. I, I trust that we will barely scratch the surface of all that the Apostle John was inspired to write in this gospel. And Lord willing, as we enter into glory someday, we're going to be singing praise and magnifying our God for the riches that are contained in this gospel, as well as the riches that are contained in all of Scripture, and even more than that, that we're going to discover in God's kingdom. So, Really looking forward to getting into the weeds of this gospel and hope that this text will ultimately exalt our hearts in our worship and service of the triune God. So having said that by way of introduction, uh, I want to invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. If you're not there already, Gospel of John chapter 1. And during our time together this morning and continuing where Alan left you guys off last week, we're going to be examining verses 6 to 13 today. So John chapter 1 and verses 6 to 13 is where we are going to be at this morning. So when you get there in your copy of God's Word, I'm going to be reading our text out of the New American Standard Bible. So please feel free to follow along as I read from God's Word. John chapter 1 beginning with verse 6. The text says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, 
To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is the word of the living God. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. It would be an understatement to say that the American church is confused about the person and work of Jesus Christ. There is great confusion scattered abroad throughout the scope of American evangelicalism with reference to the person and work of Christ. I want to share with you just a sampling of how I believe this to be the case. Every two years, Lifeway and Ligonier Ministries produces what's called a State of Theology Survey. And what this survey intends to do is it intends to portray how American self-identifying Christians think about the Bible, about the person of Jesus Christ, the work of Christ, how Christians should live in this world, how the church should be organized and function. Anything A to Z about basic Christian doctrine and practice, this state of theology survey tries to give you a lay of the land. Let me give you just a few sample statistics that portray why I believe there to be great confusion about who Jesus is amongst self-identifying Christians in our nation today. 43% of self-identifying American Christians represented in this survey believe that while Jesus was a great teacher, he was not God. 43%. People who'd say, I'm a Christian, see, Jesus is a great teacher, But he's not really God. Keep that in mind. Next stat I want to share with you. 55%, just over half, 55% of self-identifying Christians believe that Jesus, though he is glorious and worthy of worship, he was the first and greatest created being by God. In other words, according to this study, 55% of self-identifying American Christians deny that Jesus is eternal God, that he's the creator of all things, that he was merely a glorious creation from God the Father at some point before creating the world. And as y'all learned about last week in the first five verses of John's gospel, that's just simply not true. Last stat I want to share with you. 57%, okay, so now we're getting close to six out of every ten self-identifying American Christians believe that Jesus is not the only way to have a relationship with God. Just under 60% of those represented in this survey, people who would say, yes, I'm a Christian, I identify with God's people, they don't believe Jesus is the only way to a relationship with God. They think God will ultimately accept the worship from Islam, from Judaism, from Hinduism, Buddhism, any other world religion, this group of self-identifying Christians, just under 60%, they claim God will accept worship from any religion. Jesus is not the only way to God, according to this mindset. And as we'll find probably in a few months, maybe even a year, depending on how quickly we go through the Gospel of John, John 14, 6, Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. My friends, great confusion exists today as to who Jesus is and what he accomplished in his life and ministry. These should be troubling revelations for us today. And as we sit here and we think about how do we solve the problems in American Christianity in Edna, Texas at Lifeway Baptist Church, how are we going to solve the problem? What's the solution to this issue? I want to propose 
this to you today. What's the solution? How can American Christians come to a true knowledge of the biblical Jesus, his person, and his work? What can we do? I want to suggest to you that studying the Gospel of John is the solution. Studying the Gospel of John will provide you and I with clarity as to who Jesus is, what he accomplished in his earthly life, and who he is even now at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. Who is Jesus? And how does who he is directly impact my life and your life? And how should that impact the rest of the world? Studying the Gospel of John is going to get us in that place. In fact, if you look at the very end of John's Gospel, John chapter 20, verse 31, I believe this is really at the very heart of why John wrote this Gospel in the first place. He wanted his readers to know who Jesus is and how his work can directly impact and shape the lives of those who would read the gospel record. You know, in today's day and age, teachers in school, when you write a paper, they say, put your thesis statement at the very beginning of your paper. In the first century, thesis statements or purpose statements, they came at the very end of the book. Listen to what John writes here. John chapter 20 and verse 31. He says, these things, referring to everything he's written up to this point in his gospel, these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, And that believing, you may have life in his name. What's John saying? Well, according to the Apostle John in that text, he's saying that if you want to come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah who was prophesied throughout all of the Old Testament, if you want to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the eternal Trinity, if you want to believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that you might come to eternal life in God's kingdom, if, if you want to be a member of God's heavenly family, look no further than the Gospel of John. I've provided you with everything you need to have a solid, true understanding of Jesus Christ and why his identity and his life matter for you and for all the world. So, That's where we're going to be heading in our multiple months and possibly even years-long study. Not to scare you, but this is a rich book. We don't want to uh, rush through it, but we also don't want to be here for the rest of our lives. So we'll try to do our best in the months and possibly years to come to walk that fine line of diving into the deep truths in this book, but also recognizing we're never really going to ultimately get to all of the everlasting truth contained in this gospel. So... Where are we at today? Verses 6 to 13. How does it fit into the broader context of John's gospel? Well, I'm going to argue uh, today and next week, Lord willing, that in the opening 18 verses of John's gospel, you find three powerful arguments for why Jesus is God. That's how John begins his gospel record. He wants right out of the gate for his readers to know who I'm writing about to you. He's no created being. He's not merely a great teacher. He's eternal God. As taught in verses 1 to 5, I I didn't have the opportunity to preach last week. Had I preached last week's sermon, and, and I listened to Alan's sermon as well, and I think that he did a great job representing what's found in those verses. Verses 1 to 5 of John 1. If I could summarize what John's first argument is in that section, I would summarize it in this way. So first argument of three arguments in the first 18 verses of John Here it is. Jesus is the source of creation. Argument number one for why Jesus is God. Jesus is the source of creation. That is what John is arguing ultimately in verses one to five. 
If you were here last week or if you've had the opportunity to listen to Alan's sermon online, you'll find that each of these realities penned by the Apostle John were proclaimed by Alan from this pulpit. He recognized from the text that Jesus is eternal God. He is eternal God. He had no beginning. He has forever and always existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And as such, he's the creator of all things. You read the first five verses of John's gospel, you find that Jesus is the holy, everlasting, and sovereign creator of all things. Jesus is also the supplier of life. You find that in the first five verses of John's gospel as well. All life comes from the God who is life itself, right? God is life himself, and since Jesus is God, he thereby is the supplier and the provider of life. And lastly, and this really bleeds into uh, the very beginning of our examination of verses 6 to 13 this morning. In verses 1 to 5, we also find John portraying Jesus as the light of creation. Okay, so so Jesus, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, is the, the light of creation. There is no darkness in him. He is perfectly pure in his glory. So as we work our way through the Gospel of John in the weeks and months to come, Lord willing, we're going to see each of these themes further developed by John moving forward. But in the meantime, today, let's transition now into the bulk of our time together, the second major argument provided in verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1 as to how we can know Jesus is God. What evidence do we, do we have provided in this section of John's Gospel as to why Jesus is God? Notice... Verses 6 to 13, if you're taking notes, here's what I'm titling this section. Jesus is the source of salvation. Okay, so last week, Jesus is the source of creation, verses 1 to 5. Verses 6 to 13, Jesus is the source of salvation. And Lord willing, next week, we'll look at Jesus as the source of God's grace, verses 14 to 18. So that's that's a flyover of this first section in John's gospel geared towards the deity of Christ. Today, as we look at verses 6 to 13, this particular line of evidence regarding the deity of Christ, I want to provide you with three headings that's going to organize how we go about tackling this set of verses. How would we break down verses 6 to 13 in a way that we can all understand and and see the progression of John's thought working in these verses? Well, first heading, heading number one, how is Jesus the source of Salvation. What evidence is being provided by John to substantiate that claim? Verses 6 to 8, we're going we're gonna to begin by looking at the testimony of John the Baptist. In our, in our efforts to start looking into how Jesus is the source of salvation, we're going to find in verses 6 to 8 that the testimony of John the Baptist ultimately proclaims Christ as God. So verses 6 to 8, the testimony of John the Baptist. Next, verses 9 to 11. We're going to find Jesus being the source of salvation as evidenced by the indifference of a lost world. I know that sounds a little bit uh, ironic, maybe a little bit confusing. How does the indifference of a lost world ultimately point to Christ being God? We're going to find out as we look at verses 9 to 11 how that's the case. And by way of summing up our look into this series of verses, in verses 12 to 13, We're going to see the third line of evidence that shows Jesus as the source of salvation. I've titled that subheading, verses 12 to 13, as the sovereignty of Jesus in salvation. 
So three key headings underneath the broader umbrella of Jesus as the source of salvation. Heading number one, testimony of John the Baptist, verses six to eight. Heading number two, indifference of a lost world, verses nine to 11. Heading number three, the sovereignty of Jesus in salvation, verses 12 to 13. So having given this outlined uh, at the beginning of our examination of these verses, let's dive in now. Let's feast on what Christ has for us in his word as communicated by the Apostle John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Notice verses 6 to 8 with me again in your copy of God's word. John writes, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. As indicated in this line of evidence, the John who is being referenced here in this text is none other than John the Baptist. Okay, so the man who's listed as John in verse 6, this is a direct reference to John the Baptist. I don't want to get too much into a biographical sketch of John the Baptist. I'm going to leave that to Alan as he works from verses 19 and following in John chapter 1. But I do want to note that for, for those of you here this morning who may be where I was as a senior in high school when I first got saved, um, John the Baptist being referenced to here in verse 6 and following, that's not the same John who wrote the Gospel of John. Now, I know that might not come as a shock to all of you here today. It, it came as a shock to me when I first started studying this Gospel as a new Christian. I, I used to think that John the Baptist was the same John who wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John the Gospel of John, and even the book of Revelation. So just to make sure we're all on the same page here this morning, the John being referenced in verses 6 to 8 is not the same John who wrote this Gospel. When considered historically, the internal testimony or the internal evidence of this Gospel has led the church to regard John the son of Zebedee as its author. So John, the son of Zebedee, the apostle John, that's who wrote this gospel. That's not the same John being referenced to in verses six to eight. How do we know that this wasn't the case? Well, if you look at all of the gospels in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll find that John is the only disciple not mentioned in John's gospel, but he's mentioned, John, the son of Zebedee is mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And throughout the Gospel of John, you'll find references to the disciple whom Jesus loved. So John was an incredibly humble man. He didn't feel worthy to include his own name in his Gospel narrative. So instead of referring to himself, he simply referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't refer to himself by name at any point in his Gospel. So if you just do a quick comparison analysis of each of the four Gospels, you find that John the son of Zebedee must be the author included here. So that's observation number one that I want us to make from verses six to eight. There's a second observation I want us to make. Looking at this text, the next observation that I want us to make regarding John the Baptist comes from verse six. Notice verse six again. It says that John the Baptist was a man sent by God, a man sent by God. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting to note that if you look throughout the testimony of the Old Testament, or the New Testament, rather, Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, he was sent by God the Father into the world to carry out a specific mission of accomplishing the redemption of his people. 
So Jesus was a man sent by God, as declared throughout the New Testament. It's also the same with John the Baptist. Just as Christ, our Lord and Savior, was commissioned to enter into this world with a special mission ordained by God the Father, so also is John the Baptist sent into this world with a special mission that's been given to him by God the Father. Why is this important? Well, it's important because John's arrival onto the scene in the first century, that this wasn't just by chance. It wasn't his own agenda. It wasn't his own personal mission that he conjured up in his imagination. No, my friends, John the Baptist was the one prophesied in the Old Testament to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He came in the spirit and the power of Elijah to pave the route for the Messiah to come, to be revealed to the people of Israel. This was a man called and summoned by God. And if I could just extend this by way of application to our day, we need men called, commissioned, and summoned by God to fill the pulpits in the churches throughout the world and to to lead God-honoring families if we're going to see revival and resurgence in the church in our day. That's what we need. We need men like John the Baptist, sent by God on mission, called by God to love their wives and their children well, to lead by example in the workplace, to share the gospel far and wide, and to proclaim the full counsel of God's word in the context of the local church. John the Baptist was a man sent by God. But there's a third observation we can make from this passage. This comes from verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 to 8, we find that the primary function of John the Baptist's ministry was to testify about the light. So, so John the Baptist's ministry, his calling, was to bear witness or to testify about the light. And, and, and it was a testimony that was to lead lost and perishing sinners to saving faith in the light. The light being none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's interesting to note this, because although Jesus is the light of the world, he identifies himself as such in John 8, 12. We also find in this text in John 1 that that the word, the light, those are all pictures and they are all revelations of the person and work of Christ. So Jesus is the light of the world, but believers, John the Baptist being one of them, and us today in the 21st century, believers have been called to also be lights in this world. Many of you guys are likely familiar with Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16. It comes from Christ's Sermon on the Mount. Flip over there if you want. If you're not familiar with the text, I'm going to read it for you as well. But Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, it testifies how we, believers in the 21st century in Edna, Texas, we are called to be lights and to bear witness about the light, the true and greater light, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We're called to this even today. Notice what Christ or what Matthew writes as Christ proclaimed this in his sermon on the mount. Verse 14 and following. Jesus says, you are, speaking to his disciples, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but rather on the lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. Therefore, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So, observation from verses 7 and 8, taken in conjunction with this calling we find in Matthew 5, verses 14 to 16, and as evidenced throughout 
all of the passages that relate to John the Baptist's ministry in the New Testament. Specifically, uh, if you're taking notes, Matthew 3, verses 1 to 13, Mark 1, 3 to 8, and Luke 3, 2 to 17. All those texts, many of which are going to directly pertain to where we're going to go as we look deeper into John the Baptist from verse 19 of John 1 and following. Those texts taken as a whole show us John the Baptist is called to be light, to ultimately, as a light, bear witness to the true and greater light. And that's what we're called to do as well today. And I pray we'd be found faithful to do that as our Lord gives us life to do so. So this takes me to where I want to wrap up this first line of evidence. Why is the testimony of John the Baptist so significant? Why why does it matter? Why does the Apostle John, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, include the testimony of John the Baptist right at the beginning of his gospel? I mean, Right at verse 6, you get a reference to the testimony of John the Baptist. Well, my friends, whether a Jewish leader or a Jewish peasant living in the first century, virtually everybody in the nation of Israel would have known who John the Baptist was. This was not some man out in a corner that nobody really knew about. The first century readers that originally received this gospel would have known John the Baptist. Man, even the Pharisees went out to him into the wilderness. Whether you were a peasant in Israel or you were aristocrat in Israel, if you were poor or wealthy or anywhere in between, you knew who John the Baptist was. And even when he was put to death by King Herod, his status as a righteous and a God-honoring and a trustworthy man, that meant something in the first century. As such, it makes perfect sense why we find the testimony of John the Baptist bearing witness to Jesus as the source of salvation. Anybody in the nation of Israel in the first century would have taken his testimony to heart. And even if he didn't believe in Christ, there would have been a rock in your shoe. There would have been a seed of doubt in the back of your mind. Man, that John the Baptist guy, he was above reproach. He was a God-honoring man. Even the religious officials of Israel had interest in what he had to say. Maybe there's something to this Jesus guy. Maybe I should listen a little bit to what he had to say and what everybody else in our day is saying about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the source of salvation as testified to by John the Baptist. That brings us to the second heading or subheading rather that I want us to look at. This is going to correspond with verses 9 to 11. Second line of evidence that points to why Jesus is the source of salvation. Verses 9 to 11 shows us the indifference of a lost world. The indifference of a lost world points to Jesus as the source of salvation. Notice verses 9 to 11 again with me in your copy of God's word. John writes, there was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. He came to his own and those who were his own did not receive him. Now, when I was studying this text this week, I'll be the first to admit, I was initially just a little bit confused as to what we're finding in this passage in regard to that phrase enlightens every man. What is John saying when he refers to Jesus enlightening every man? What is he talking about here? Because 
initially in my mind, as I look at this text, I think, well, wait a second now. Isn't there billions of people throughout world history who've never heard about Jesus? Like, how does Jesus enlighten every man? How, how, how can John say this? How does this make sense? Maybe you're having thoughts yourselves of that nature as we're reading the text together this morning. Well, after I, I studied this text further and I had the opportunity to look at some solid commentaries on the Gospel of John, I found the commentary by Colin Cruz in the Tyndale New Testament commentary series especially helpful. I think you'll find this quote clarifying. I'd be more than happy to share it with you after our lesson if you find it to be clarifying as well. Notice what Cruz writes on verse 9 in John's Gospel. This is what John is saying when he says Jesus enlightens Every man. Direct quote from Cruz. As the gospel of John unfolds, we find that the word incarnate, Jesus Christ, is the light of the world. And as the light of the world, all of Christ's teaching and character brought the light to bear upon all he came into contact with. So Cruz is saying, and I think he's rightly interpreting this text. He's saying that every person who Jesus interacted with in his day, they came into direct contact with God's character, God's truth, and ultimately God's will. Jesus perfectly modeled those things in his life. He perfectly modeled God's character. He perfectly spoke God's truth. And he always submitted to God's will in his life. That's what John is saying in this verse when he talks about Jesus enlightening every single man. As the light of the world, Jesus manifested the truth and character of God to every person that he came into contact during his earthly life. And it's certainly true. Don't make any mistake about it. He continues to do that in our day as well. Every person that you share the gospel with or you share biblical truth with or every person that sits under sound preaching and teaching of God's word on Sunday morning, they are coming into contact with Christ enlightening them to the character of God to the works of God, to the truth of God, to the will of God. Jesus enlightens every man. He's the light of the world. In my estimation, I believe that to be the most consistent way of interpreting what John is writing here in verse 9. That takes us now to verses 10 and 11. Okay, so we're walking now through the indifference of a lost world. Verses 10 and 11. Notice how these verses show us how the vast majority of people have reacted to Jesus, not only during the first century, but in every generation since. In these verses, we find the tragic reality that the vast majority of people throughout the past 2,000 years have just held Christ at arm's length. They've either completely rejected Him, we know that to be the case in many of the world religions, but think about this especially in our day. In the Bible Belt, Jackson County, Texas, how many friends, family, co-workers do you know who they say something along these lines or they live it out in their lifestyle? Yeah, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian. I never go to church. I never read the Bible. I never pray. Um, I don't surrender my life to his lordship. But I'm a Christian. I go to church on Easter and Christmas, maybe Thanksgiving Sunday, depending on which side of the in-laws I'm visiting for that holiday. We all know those people. We all see those people. 
That's indifference. That's apathy. That's keeping Jesus far enough away to where we don't have to fully surrender ourselves to his lordship. And that's exactly what John's calling out here in verses 10 and 11. Despite being the eternal creator of all things, despite being the word made flesh, despite being the light of the world, the unbelieving world continues to not know Jesus. They continue to either outright reject him in some of the more hostile cases, or they just say, you know, I like Jesus. He's a nice teacher. He said a lot of really nice things, things that can make my life better. But I don't, I don't like all of what Jesus has to say. I, I don't like how Jesus speaks to my sexual ethics. I don't like how Jesus speaks to how I have to interact with other people in the context of the workplace or in the context of the local church. I don't like how Jesus excludes all those other religions. After all, if God is all loving, how could he ever condemn anybody? Wouldn't you think that a creature would not only be able to recognize the identity of the one who brought them into existence, but more so than that, don't you think that a creature would be willing to surrender themselves to the one who created them, the one who has the inherent right to rule over their lives. You would think that would just logically follow, but my friends, that just hasn't been the case. Look at the past 2,000 years. Look at the state of the American church today. You've got nearly 60% of people saying that Jesus isn't the only way to God. People who identify as Christians in our nation. It's tragic, tragic news. But notice what John also says in verse 11. He gets very personal with his first century readers. Writing as a Jew, the Apostle John writes the following in verse 11 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not accept him. What's he, what's he talking about there? Jesus came to his own people and they did not accept him. Well, According to the Apostle John, Gentiles aren't the only ones who've been guilty of outright rejection of Christ or holding them at arm's length. Jewish people have done the same thing. The, the nation whom was supposed to welcome their Messiah to rule and reign over them as king, they've said, we will not have you to reign over us as Lord. They, they, they've completely cast him aside, either in outright hostility in extreme cases, but more often than not, look at most Jews today, they don't hate Jesus. They just don't think he's the Messiah. We, we, we really don't want anything to do with him today. That's the mindset that was embraced in the first century. It's the mindset we see today, my friends. And it's a mindset that's tragically not only proper to Gentiles like you and me. Gentile just meaning non-Jew. I don't know if there's anybody here today who's Jewish. But Jews... To this day, by and large, they don't surrender to their Messiah. They don't recognize his identity. That's what Paul talks about in Romans 11. Go read it sometime if you've never done so before. He's addressing the question, how in the world could the gospel succeed when the vast majority of Jews haven't even accepted their own Messiah? It's such a tragic thought. And what it should do, my friends, it should cause us to pray. We should be praying not only for the salvation of our friends, family, members, neighbors, co-workers, we should be praying for the salvation of Jews as well. Maybe the most tragic reality is that the, that the Messiah who came closest to home came directly to them, offering his free gift of salvation, receiving God's mercy and love. They, were, they just completely rejected him. 
They're indifferent to him. Now, coming full circle, how does this show Jesus as the source of salvation? Yeah, Dewey, we agree. That's, that's all really bad stuff. But how does this show Jesus as the source of salvation? How do you fit all this together? Well, let me put this as simply as I can. Land the plane here. Despite the indifference of a lost and perishing, unbelieving world, despite their indifference, despite their rejection of Christ, verses 9 through 11 emphasize how Jesus takes the initiative to reveal the fullness of God's character, teaching, and work. Did you catch that in the text? Sometimes we can gloss over details like this if we read too quickly. Notice how verses 9 to 11 demonstrate Jesus' intentionality to pursue lost and perishing sinners that want nothing to do with them. In verse 9, Jesus is identified as the one who, what did he do? He came into the world and he enlightened every person he interacted with. Jesus is intentionally Coming into the world, he's intentionally pursuing lost and perishing sinners, many of whom would reject him ultimately. He's extending his free invitation to come and be saved. Verse 10, we see the intentionality of Christ here. Jesus is identified as the one who brings creation into existence. I mean, how can it get even more intentional than that? He's the one who created everything. Colossians 1, he's the one who sustains all things by the word of his power. In verse 11, Jesus is identified as the one who comes to the Jewish people. He freely offers himself to them. He is welcoming his own to come to the good shepherd. To receive eternal rest for their souls. These three verses, my friends, even amongst the indifference of a lost world, Jesus is actively pursuing lost and perishing sinners. Jesus is not passive. He's not at the, at the mercy of people who are just treating him unfairly or unjustly. Jesus is an active agent in his life. And he's an active agent in this gospel. John's going to show us. Jesus goes to sinners like you and me. And he offers us salvation. He offers us the truth of God. He offers us rest for our souls. He reveals God's will for our lives as found in his word. Jesus is the source of salvation, even in the midst of a lost, perishing, and largely indifferent world. So today, in verses 6 through 8, we've seen the testimony of John the Baptist pointing to Jesus as the source of salvation. We've considered the indifference of a lost world from verses 9 to 11, how that points to Jesus as the source of salvation. As we prepare to draw our time together to a close today, Notice verses 12 and 13 and how those verses show us the sovereignty of Jesus in salvation. This is a nice segue from our previous point. Jesus is active in pursuing sinners. Jesus, by virtue of being active and not passive, he's sovereign in the salvation of the sinners he pursues. Verses 12 to 13. John writes, But as many as received him, referring to Jesus, but as many as received Jesus... To them, Jesus gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So in keeping with the flow of his thought in verses 9 to 11, do you see how verses 12 and 13 describe Jesus Christ's absolute sovereignty over the salvation of sinners? 
Right out of the gate, John wants to show his first century readers, hey, here's how you can know Jesus is God. God, by virtue of being God, by definition of what it means to be God, Jesus is sovereign. He not only created all things, He's not only the Word incarnate, He's not only the light of the world, enlightening all people He comes into contact with. This Christ, this Lord, this Savior, He's sovereign over who He saves. And He pursues them to the end. And He never fails to save His own. And notice this. Only those who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are given the right to become the children of God. Man, I hope the roof doesn't cave in on me right now. If you go into many churches today and you interact with many Christians today, they'll say, you know, everybody's a child of God. Everybody has a right to God. They're his child by birthright. My friends, that's just not what we find here in the word of God. Genesis 1, 26, 28. God has created man in his image. We are all image bearers of God. We are all special creations of God. But make no mistake about it, my friends. Only those who are followers of Jesus Christ, according to the inspired word of God, have the right to sonship. Only those who have trusted in Christ are regarded as God's children. This is the testimony of God's word. But notice the direct link between becoming a child of God and Jesus' sovereignty. Fascinating connection that John makes in the text. Right here in the text. John notes, verses 12 to 13, one does not become a child of God apart from the sovereign will of Jesus Christ. Of course, working together with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. When John says that children of God are not born of blood, he's saying that becoming a child of God is ultimately dependent not on one's family bloodline. So your family bloodline isn't what makes you a child of God, John says. When John says that children of God are not born by the will of the flesh, he's saying that it doesn't matter what your parents want for you. That doesn't make you a child of God. Growing up in the right church doesn't make you a child of God. Having the pastor give his blessing over you doesn't make you a child of God. It doesn't ultimately depend on the will of the flesh. John also says children of God are not born by the will of man. Man cannot birth himself, as it were. I don't think either of you came into this world because we decided to give birth to ourselves. That's not how it works. So also does it not work that way in salvation? What is John saying? Well, in the final analysis, verses 12 to 13 are proclaiming that if a person has become a child of God, don't miss this. This is why we worship every Lord's Day and every day of our life. Um, If a person has become a child of God, it's ultimately because of the sovereign pleasure of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It's not because anyone was better than anybody else. It's not because somebody was born to the right family. It's not because the pope or a priest or a pastor gave blessing to somebody at a young age. It's not because somebody ultimately just pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and figured it out. In the final analysis, John is saying, verses 12 to 13, if you are a child of God, it's because Christ pursued you and he snatched you out of the flames of hell and he snatched you out of the lost and perishing world that's indifferent to his lordship and his character and he made you a son or daughter in Christ by his own sovereign delight. And that's why we worship. That's why we serve him. If you're here today and you know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I mean, we should fall on our face before God every single day. 
We are solely who we are because of his grace and his mercy. That's what, you know, we throw those terms around a lot. Grace, what is grace? It's getting something you don't deserve to receive. We had no claim to salvation. We had no claim to adoption. We had no claim to sonship. That's God's grace. Mercy, what's that? It's not getting what you deserve to receive. Through the gospel, through Jesus' perfect life, his death on the cross, his bodily resurrection from the grave three days after crucifixion, his ascension into glory after appearing to more than 500 witnesses, his present intercessory work at the right hand of God the Father, all of that allows us, sinners, those who violated God's commands, it allows us to be spared the judgment that we're deserving of. We don't get what we deserve to, see, to receive, judgment, and we get what we don't deserve to receive, everlasting life, forgiveness of sins, the love and grace and mercy of God shed abroad in our hearts both now and for everlasting life in God's kingdom. That's why we worship, my friends. No greater blessing to behold in this life. If you're here today, trust that all of y'all are Christians. Um, I hope all of y'all are Christians. Um, Worship God this week. Rest in His mercy and grace and love that has been lavished upon you. Because of what Jesus has done in pursuing you and saving you to the end. But in the event there's somebody here today that doesn't know Jesus. I don't know your heart. I'm not speculating who is or who isn't saved. All I'm saying is maybe you're here today and you feel that inner conviction. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. So we're going to have that time to examine ourselves anyways. Lest we take of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner per 1 Corinthians 11. But maybe you're here today and you're hearing this and it's all kind of clicked for you. You've never really had it click for you about your need for salvation and who Jesus is and why it matters and how that applies to your life. If you're here today, you don't know Jesus, my plea with you is simply this. Now is the day for salvation. Receive Christ's free gift of salvation through faith alone. He has made every provision for you right now. All you need to do is believe. Who's to say he's not pursuing you even now through this sermon by virtue of the work of the Holy Spirit together with the word of God? Come to Christ and live. Come to the one who's the source of salvation. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, if there was ever a doubt in our minds as to who we believe the source of our salvation to be. I pray that this passage and all that has been said today has shown that Christ and Christ alone is that source. We've seen, Father, from the inspired writings of John that there are, in this text alone, three pieces of evidence that demonstrates how our salvation was ultimately ordained and accomplished by the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's so many more evidences in Scripture. I'm sure we'd spend eternity just marveling over those evidences. But just in this text, God, I trust we're all overwhelmed by what we've considered this morning. That you've made salvation possible through Christ's person and work. And I pray, Father, that for those of us who know you, that we would be motivated now more than ever before to serve you with every fiber of our being, wherever you call us, God. Lord, that these truths would grip the fabric of our soul and that we would be moved to be who you've called us to be in Christ, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of walk of life. Father, I pray you would move us to be who you've called us to be. Make this church who you have called it to be, Father, in accordance with your word. 
And lastly, Father, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, I just ask and pray, if there are anyone here today, we don't know the heart, Father. We, we only know that you are omniscient and you see all things and know all things. So perhaps there's one, maybe more, who knows, maybe listening online at a later date. They've heard the truth today. They've heard the gospel. They've, they've seen Christ's glory in Scripture. They've been enlightened to him. Father, I pray that you would convict them of their sin and that you would draw them to yourself, Father, that the Holy Spirit would overwhelm them, that, that, that he would supernaturally transform them into a new creation and that they would behold you as their God and their treasure and their heavenly Father. Oh, Father, would it be the desire of our hearts through our lives and our ministry to make much of Christ and to see sinners come to taste and see that he is good until Christ returns or calls us home. Be with us now, Father, as we prepare to take of the Lord's Supper. May we take it in a manner that is pleasing in your sight and that brings you glory and that nourishes us spiritually as we seek to be your scattered church as we leave this time of corporate worship. We pray all of this in Christ's name.